Welcome to our Digital Disruptor series where we profile companies and innovations that are set to remake and reshape industries, companies, and the economy. We hope you'll enjoy our interviews and always welcome any comments and suggestions. Good day, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Momenta Edge podcast. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner here, and with us today, we have John Sobel, who is CEO and co-founder of Sight Machine. And uh, Sight Machine is a really interesting company. We'll be we'll be getting into that in in a little bit uh, in a little bit, but uh, you know they are really at the vanguard of applying analytics to help manufacturing clients in particular, you know, optimize their operations and uh, output and reduce risks, you know, through the application of, of their technologies. And, and John had been a participant in one of our prior webinars, uh, but, but now we get a chance to, to kind of really dive into things and, and, um, uh, and explore a number of topics. So John, it's, uh, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thank you, Ed. It's a, it's a pleasure to join you. Great. Well, you know, I always like to start things off by getting a, a, a bit of a sense of, of your context and what has brought you to, you know, to, to where you are today. And, you know, or if, particularly in terms of your, you know, your relationship with technology, I know you've got an, an interesting background having worked for some, uh, um, some very prominent companies. Um, you know, would love to, love, love to hear, hear about, you know, what's, uh, you know, what, what's, what's brought you to where you are today. You bet. Uh, and there are a lot of lefts and rights. I've always just, uh, gone toward what was interesting at the time. My, Technology career started in the mid-90s. I started working with uh, a semiconductor company that was doing graphics chips in the PC era, and that very quickly led to a stint at Yahoo, where I didn't look up for about six years. I joined in the late 90s, and um, when I left, I was on the management team there, and it was a really interesting time because the first chapter of the Internet was coming to a close and you could tell uh, where Google was headed and what was about to happen next. And that whole era was a lot of time spent thinking about the application of Internet to a whole range of industries. But many of them at the time were virtual world industries. So a lot of information, uh, a lot of work around uh, the adoption of Internet technology. I then went to work uh, on the other side of the street. I went to a large media company. I went to CBS when online video and mobile was happening. And I wanted to see what it was like to be on the incumbent side of the technology dynamic. I was there for a couple of years. I missed being on the disruptor side. And that's where I met Nate Osendorp, uh, the, uh, the, the CTO of our company and, the, and uh, the, the founder, the guy who started it all off. He and I got to know each other at um, a precursor to GitHub, an open source uh, uh, distribution platform that housed uh, a storied website called Slashdot and a large uh, open source distribution platform called uh, SourceForge. And Nate and I worked together for a couple of years there. The whole focus was on modernizing a 10-year-old platform, and Nate built this very impressive 
big data back end, just as big data was becoming big data, we were generating 30 terabytes of data a day at that time on this site and pushing around about 2 million software files a day all over the world. So that was a really good foundation in um, where technology was headed 10 years ago. I then got very interested in energy, and I spent, um, I spent some time in the energy field. I was uh, briefly on the management team of Tesla. I also worked for a really interesting carbon capture company, and the takeaway from those experiences was the opportunity for the intersection of high technology and traditional industry. It was very evident even then that Silicon Valley was very focused on stuff like social media and, and still virtual world things, but that there was going to be a lot of opportunity for companies that could talk to both sides of the street. And at that point, around 2011, Nate took the work we had done around uh, data and really processing uh, huge amounts of it and started to think about where to, where to throw that. And he contacted me when he had um, one other partner, uh, one of our founders, Anthony Oliver, and some help from another one of our founders, Kurt Damage. And we all started to think about manufacturing in 2011. So that's how we got to here. <laughs> well, that's, a, yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty, uh, um, pretty diverse background. I, you know, I'd love to get your thoughts on some of the uh, the experiences that kind of shape your views working at SourceForge because, you know, some of the comments that we are, you know, interesting discussion threads that we've had in our, in the podcast have focused a lot on the, on the, on the role of open source and the open source development model, but also, you know, maybe some of the challenges involved in, in building businesses based on uh, open source technologies and would, lo would love to get a, a, some perspective on, uh, you know, what you saw there before, you know, before GitHub had, you know, had really emerged. You bet. There were a couple things, Ed. One was, there was definitely uh, a moment in time when open source was really almost, uh, you know, a belief system. And if, uh, when I joined, uh, I was a business person who was asked to manage uh, a bunch of open source engineers who were very mission-driven by the ethos of open source. Uh, as, you know, as people who have studied it know, um, there is a definitely uh, a value system underneath it all. But uh, what was happening, and, and GitHub really epitomizes, epitomized this, is it was becoming a very practical way of developing. And today people use open source all the time, and it's, it's no longer uh, so much mission-driven as just a really good way to develop. And there were a couple of... Uh, Things at the time that seemed self-evident to all of us, uh, I, I've since realized that they weren't self-evident to everybody, but one was there's a difference between building a business model around, quote, being an open source company versus just using open source in your stack. And there are a lot of great companies and most software companies today use a lot of open source in their stack, but they don't self-identify as an open source company. Another great insight, uh, and, and we're that way. We have over 100 libraries in our stack, and if you have good hygiene and, you, and you're just careful about making sure that you use software with the right license structures, it's an incredibly scalable, cost-effective way to build a complicated piece of technology. So that was really just starting then. 
another thing that I took away, of course, was uh, part of the ethos of the open source community. And, and this has gotten very mixed into how technology is developed all around the world now. Open source traditionally was an extremely non-hierarchical, meritocratic environment. People worked on distributed teams. It didn't really matter what your job title was or who you were. Your contributions to the project or your ability to help foster collaboration were really the currencies in that community. And I had the good fortune to work with a lot of really smart engineers who thought that way. And I believe those kinds of uh, approaches to software development or how you build a really great piece of technology. So the experience of being around a bunch of really good engineers who have been steeped in this way of working definitely influenced what I brought to the party when, when, when I got together with Nate uh, to start working on Site Machine. Yeah, and it's uh, it's it's interesting because as, as I think as we mentioned before, uh, you know, in, in our in our offline conversation, I I had actually met Nate and interviewed him for uh, for a report that I had done on innovation at my at my prior uh, my prior job at CLSA. So that was uh, it's kind of, it's a great it, it's it's amazing how small the world is. But he was uh, um, he was he was talking about uh, the you know, the open source. Innovation uh, landscape, and it's it is really fascinating how it had it become. You know, in 25 years, you know, we've gone from this. Uh, I think a, a sort of a fringe, you know, fringe technology uh, movement by that was you know spearheaded by, you know, by engineers and and kind of do-it-yourselfers to now uh, with open source technology being you know foundational to you know the largest corporations in the world and and the you know the biggest internet companies and and the most scalable infrastructure it really is really is remarkable what a you know what a shift that's been oh it was fascinating oh go ahead sorry well, I was I was gonna I was I did want to touch on your experience at at Tesla and get your thoughts on on what because the Tesla experience as you alluded had has it really shaped your views of uh, you know the application of technology and in industry and would love to get your thoughts and insights on, on you know what you saw initially uh, working with Tesla in the early days but but also some of the uh, you know some of the problems challenges and opportunities that you saw in the uh, in the energy industry absolutely and, and really similar lessons from both experiences uh, software so in the in its earliest days uh, a lot of, uh, of Tesla's uniqueness and advantage was around uh, the skillful application of software to classic uh, uh, power management problems. And so in many ways, it had a really strong software component. And of course, over time, as people talk about the experience with the vehicle and the way uh, a software is used to enhance the, the driver's experience or to continually update vehicle software, everybody's come to appreciate that one way we can look at a car is, is a rolling computer. And yet, uh, there are very significant considerations around it being a car and cars being something expensive and dangerous uh, that have to be taken into account. And so both at Tesla and as I had the good fortune to get into some really interesting energy problems, 
I came to feel that there are mindsets and worldviews in traditional industry that need to be taken account of and understood. There's a whole view of risk that is necessarily different uh, for, for life safety issues uh, than we typically have in Silicon Valley. There's also a, a speed and a spirit of innovation in the high-tech world that is very different and very useful. Uh, that can be applied to, to traditional industry. And I just remember thinking a lot, and, and you know, at both companies I was doing uh, transactional work, regulatory things, communicating on behalf of those companies to a whole range of people who are not from uh, the world here. And I got very intrigued by opportunities where you can bring both worlds together. And, and this, of course, increasingly, you know, I don't remember exactly when it was, I think it was 2012, 2013, um, Mark Andreessen wrote about software eating the world. Mm-hmm. It's true that software eats the world, but you gotta understand the world. You can't, just, you can't just do it from a garage. And especially as the stakes uh, and the span of it get bigger, it, we're actually bringing all this together. Uh, this, this is the future of technology, is, is doing real stuff of more and more uh, kind of physical world consequence. And I got very intrigued by how do, how do people from both worlds talk to each other and build something together? Uh, and that, that's what's been so gratifying about this is you really can't think of a more <laughs> traditional industry than manufacturing, uh, but like every other industry on the planet, uh, there's, a, there's a ton of data, there's a lot to do. And if you can figure out how to skillfully apply uh, what, what we do here in Silicon Valley uh, to that world, there's a lot of opportunity for gain. And, and as I think we will probably get into, the cultural and human being parts of this are far more challenging than the tech. <laughs> so it's an endlessly interesting journey. It is. So I'd love to hear a bit of the, you know, the, uh, you know, the backdrop and uh, uh, kind of the origin story behind the the genesis of Sight Machine. You know, what was it uh, about um, the you know whether it be manufacturing or or the or the pain points that you identified that you know where you saw that there was a need that that uh, you know had had hadn't been addressed yet. So here's where the hacker mindset, we were talking about open source a moment ago, and there's a bunch of things that people who, who work with that community will immediately recognize. Hackers really don't like to do unnecessary work. There's a lot of motivation in, uh, in software development around avoiding waste and, and wasted time and, and coming up with elegant solutions. And one of the things that I so admire about Nate and Anthony and Kurt is in contrast to many technologists who really fall in love with what they built and then go look for what to do with it. We were always motivated by what's the problem and then let's build what we need to build to solve the problem. And so the origin of the company is we decided that manufacturing was a really interesting domain because on first principles, it's, it's appealing in a number of ways that people now appreciate but weren't widely understood then. If we think of data as fuel for insight, just how much data is there? Manufacturing has more data than any other category uh, by a factor of two. So it's a domain with a lot of data. 
if we think about the economic value of the data, what, what is a percentage point of improvement in manufacturing worth? In any large manufacturer, it's worth tens of millions of dollars, maybe more. So there's good initial conditions from a technology point of view, a lot of data. There's very compelling economic impact that's quantifiable and meaningful. And it's a really hard area, and in 2011, there hadn't been a lot of progress in 20 or 30 years in using this data. So here's what we knew at the outset. We, we thought, okay, this is a cool category. It's hard, but we can make this data useful. Then it was, let's go figure this out. And here's where I just feel so appreciative of how um, our leadership approached this. We, we, uh, we spent about two years, most of us, we're in Southeast Michigan, and there's a lot of automotive manufacturing in Southeast Michigan. Most of us were there, and those of us, like me, who weren't spent a lot of time there anyway, and we went to a bunch of factories. And we did what, what you should do when you start a company. We, we, we asked a lot of questions. We spent about two years going to a bunch of plants and asking, where's the pain? What is the pain? And what we quickly realized was plants were awash in data, but they couldn't use it. And like many startups, we, we began with a very specific focus on a certain type of data. We started working with image data from machine vision systems. Uh, that's, that's not a widely known area, but what happens is there's a lot of cameras in factories that take pictures of parts as they're being produced. The cameras generate a bunch of images. And we started to apply very sophisticated AI techniques to understand the images and identify variation. What immediately happened, we got hired by uh, a couple really big companies, and what immediately happened was they said, it's cool that you understand this, but we want you to understand everything at once. We got all different kinds of data, and we got a bunch of point solutions. We want something that understands, this, understands it all. And so about two, three years into this, that's when we really locked into our opportunity. And it, it came from, Ed, I can't tell you, maybe going to 40, 50 plants and just talking to people. And we heard the same thing again and again. What are some of the uh, unique challenges about the, the different types of data that you find in manufacturing plants? I, you know, I'm assuming that you have, uh, you've got PLCs, you mentioned, uh, you, you mentioned machine, you know, machine imaging, but, but also, uh, you know, there, uh, there's a lot of proprietary, there are a lot of proprietary uh, data, you know, data sources and, and, uh, and protocols, et cetera. And would love to get your, you know, your sense as you, as you, mapped out what some of the challenges were and how you prioritize the work that you did to uh, at least identify where you could add the most value as a, as a young company. You bet. So you, you nailed it. Uh, you nailed it, Ed. Um, in very simplistic terms, if we think of what we used to call big data uh, as three Vs, volume, velocity, variety, uh, as of 2011, 2012, the, the big data world had come up with really good solutions for volume and velocity. Hadoop was all the rage, and people were very intrigued by the needs and the opportunities around computing huge amounts of data at once. But most of what was being done was for reasonably well-structured, consistent data sets. If we think about going into the physical world, and, and we, 
you know, we say this lightheartedly, but it's, it's really true. Manufacturing is the NFL of data variety. For all the reasons you just alluded to, you find more different types of data generated by different things with less consistency in manufacturing than, than you do anywhere. And this is true inside of any single plant. You and I could both be plant managers for the same company. We could be making the same stuff. And the data environment of Ed's plant would be completely different than the data environment of John's plant. And it's different on every aspect. It's, it's siloed, so it's in different places. It's structured differently. It's on different rhythms, different time frames. And so the great challenge, uh, which is more difficult in manufacturing than really almost any other environment, is to make sense of this data holistically and to put it together in an automated way, not by hand so that you can, you can get useful information out of it. And what we ended up doing, we were challenged very early on. There were maybe 10 of us, and one client came to us, and it was a really cool moment in the company's life in retrospect. And they said, can you all continuously stream data out of a bunch of different assets from a number of different plants owned by different contract manufacturers? So every facet of the problem showed up here. Can you stream this data, it's all different, and can you integrate and blend and make sense of it on an ongoing basis? And if you can do that, here's a sizable check. And you know, tell us how much time you need and how much money you need. And so we were really lucky to find a company that wanted to roll the dice on solving that problem. We bet it all, this was 2014, and we decided let's, let's see if we can solve this. If we can't, we'll, well, it'll be over, but, but if we can, we will have really advanced our capability in the field. And, and we did solve the problem, and what we ended up realizing, uh, not, not, this wasn't planned, but what we realized was the way to attack that problem is to abstract it, to, at a very deep level, to come up with ways of handling the data that are essentially independent of the machines or processes you're studying, but abstract the problem in such a way so that you can basically take in data from any, any source, any, any process, and make sense of it. And that's required in manufacturing. What companies have found again and again and again is that they just use kind of standard analytical techniques or get a bunch of data scientists to work on stuff. Everybody invariably ends up doing bespoke models for a local problem. Nobody gets any scale. So we were forced by taking a big bet to, to, to bite the scale bullet right away. And it goes right at the heart of what's so difficult about this. You know, billions of dollars have been spent in industrial internet trying to make sense of manufacturing. And the reason most people have hit the wall is because of the variety problem. So uh, that's, that's how it all got started for us. And of course, that solution is not a manpower problem. It's not a matter of having 100 engineers. It's a time and experience problem. And once we got into it and started to refine the models and go to more and more plants and get smarter about data and tuning the models and so on, you get a really nice accelerating advantage. I'd like to uh, zoom in a bit on a on, on a point that you highlighted, which was this idea that every plant is unique and and there's so much you know there's so much uh, I guess you know heterogeneity among the you know the the different types of machines and different types of data, um, but 
yet you, you know, in building that abstraction layer, um, you know, how did you, how did you work with your clients to uh, really attach, you know, context, you know, whether it be semantic context or, you know, business context to the different types of data, you know, so that you could build this, you know, this, this, uh, um, the framework that you could use to, to be able to, to replicate it. I really appreciate the question. It's a great question because you're right. If we think of if we think of the flow of data kind of in a left to right way, and if in our minds we put a picture of all this crazy heterogeneity on the left, and then we think about pushing that data through some sort of abstraction layer, we have to get to a small, consistent set of things on the right, or otherwise we're just taking chaos and turning it into more chaos. And here's where, again, the thoughtfulness of our technology leaders was so just spot on. We didn't invent any frameworks. We didn't, we didn't ourselves come up with how to, how to kind of organize the insights from, from this data. That structure, that set of principles about how to organize it happens to come out of manufacturing. And here's what we realized after working at five or 10 companies. It doesn't matter what you make. If you're making cars or drugs or food or oil, there are the same set of questions and needs that you have as a manufacturer. The, the discipline is manufacturing itself. And every, every manufacturer wants visibility into production. They want to know how much stuff they're making. <laughs> they want to know how fast or well they're making it as compared to an ideal. And they want to know why they're having problems, and the problems generally fall into only a couple buckets. Your, your machines may be going down in ways that are unplanned, so you want to understand why is that happening. Your uh, quality may have issues. And there's actually a family of metrics in manufacturing that many companies use called OEE. Many of your, many of your listeners will undoubtedly be familiar with it. But it turns out that there is this metastructure around manufacturing that already exists. And so what Site Machine is helping companies do is take all this heterogeneous data and organize it around deep structures, ways of thinking about manufacturing that they already have. And it turns out that if you do that part well, what, what you referred to a moment ago as abstraction, you can then associate all of this data to these concepts. And then the thing that everybody thinks is hard, the analysis, the math, the, the, the techniques that we apply to data, that goes lightning fast because you got the data in the right building blocks. And it turns out that no matter what you make, the building blocks are basically the same. That's true for discrete and continuous. It's true for really whatever product you make. So I'd love to understand a bit more about how Site Machine has uh, really expressed this in, in technology. Could you talk a bit about your technology and, and then how that gets applied in the context of your of your customers' manufacturing environments, you bet. Uh, we so we're a software company. Um, first thing I should say at the outset is um, we're completely agnostic as to a company's edge situation or cloud strategy. We work on whatever edge networks they have and however they're moving data, uh, if they are moving data, or however we might extract it and aggregate it. All of that is quite flexible. We're a a subscription software product. And what our product does, and this is a really important thing for me to emphasize, it's a product. It's not handcrafted, it's not bespoke, it's not a consultant-heavy thing. It's a product that streams data as it's being generated, 
through a transformation layer and then takes what you can think of as a manufacturing data warehouse and either pushes that data into client systems if the client has a factory information system or wants to use Tableau or SAS or whatever great tools are out there for BI and visualization, Power BI and the like, you can push it into all that stuff. We also have a browser-based visualization and analysis layer and all of this is very open. So we got APIs on this, we've got a, um, an SDK, we've got data discovery tools, and either we or our clients or advisors of theirs can start doing very sophisticated things with the data. We have a number of out-of-the-box analytics uh, that, that come with our product. And so we can, we can show clients on a continuous basis Here's what's going on with your production. Here's what's causing downtime. Here's what's causing quality issues. We can, we can offer predictive analytics on top of it, given, given everything that's happened in the past, what's likely to happen in the future. And obviously, the more data we can put into this, the better, because you get more and more robust insights. And what we're finding is a number of companies go through a very similar progression. Believe it or not, Reliable visibility into production is a big deal. It's amazing how well companies do just, you know, with Excel and kind of daily roll-ups and reporting, but having real visibility is helpful. So a lot of times companies will start with visibility. They'll be somewhat surprised by what surfaces as problems. They'll dig into it. They'll figure out what's causing them. They'll fix those problems. They'll move on to harder ones. And so what we really end up doing with our clients is we offer this product it brings a lot of new insight and it ends up helping companies develop a workflow around data. And so we will work with them on developing that workflow and really bringing this into production. What are some of the organizational dynamics involved with, with, a, with a successful implementation? I mean, you've, you've had a chance to really develop solutions from the, from the bottom up, as it were. But, you know, how do you, uh, you know, how do you best, you know, help your clients, you know, identify their pain points? And, and are there best practices or uh, challenges that need to be overcome when you're combining your information technology-based solution with, you know, traditional uh, industrial or, or uh, manufacturing machines and technologies? That's a great question. And uh, as you might expect, the organizational challenges end up being the most complex and important. We're learning all the time about this. And here's what we understand so far. It's absolutely essential at the beginning of an engagement. So McKinsey said something like 98% of companies are digitally transforming. If you ask most companies, why are you doing this? A lot of times you don't get the same answer from everybody. It's not clear. So this involves some work and some pain, and uh, the first comment is companies got to know why it's doing it and what it's for, or it's going to flounder. Uh, it doesn't have to have everything figured out, but it's, it's got to have very strong, committed leadership that has some sort of North Star in mind. And, and, you know, being a better manufacturer is a great place to start. And that leads to the second thing, which has been really interesting uh, to work through with companies. Transparency is something that every company says it wants, but the incentive structures and the way people are measured is often at war with the idea of transparency. 
it's very hard uh, in some cultures to suddenly reveal all the problems in a plant and have everybody be okay with it. Now, ideally, uh, that's exactly what would happen. Organization would embrace a plant manager for, for saying, hey, I thought we were here, but really we're, we're a little bit behind and here, here's our challenges. And so one of the things we work really hard to do uh, is, is make sure companies are ready for this. I can't tell you how many times the data has come out at kind of the first moment of, of truth when, when it's all been put together and people say, that can't be right, those numbers are wrong. Now, obviously you adjust and refine and validate, but almost always there are big surprises at the beginning because companies have never really been able to shine a light on what's going on. And uh, we find that just about every company says it wants transparency, not all of them do, huh. and we work really hard to coach. I mean, think about it. If you're a, if you're a plant manager and, and you're going to get punished for revealing previously unknown problems, that's not easy to do. And so we work really hard to guide the management teams to thinking something like, this is actually good. We now know stuff that we didn't know before. Now we can get better. And, of course, there's a great tradition of continuous improvement in the manufacturing world. Mm-hmm. So we find that almost always the manufacturing types are pretty cool with this. The business types may or may not be on the, on the same page. And this is where organizational politics and are we as good as we thought we were and all that stuff comes in. The other thing is, of course, this involves a lot of change for IT. IT is becoming a much more strategic function in companies, and it's got so much opportunity in front of it. But there's vulnerability on all sides here. IT leaders have to have to learn a lot of stuff about manufacturing they might not have known, and it's not easy for an IT leader to go, you know, I have no idea what good production really looks like. Is this good or bad? How can I help? So we see a whole range of behaviors and kind of dynamics between IT and OT. That, that's where this is won or lost. And ultimately, ultimately, that's about company leadership. If you've got a good leadership team that's telling everybody, we're going to win, we're going to get good at this, we're going to find out some bad stuff we don't like, but we're going to work through it, then you're going to be fine. If you've got the usual politics and, and you know, people covering their own, their own turf and all that, then, then no matter how good the tech is, it's not going to work. Yeah, it's a great point that you make, though, that that transparency is not necessarily uh, it's not necessarily, you know, people people get what they didn't expect a lot of times. And that can create some uh, certainly create some issues. What about some of the the, really the common uh, benefits that that you've seen? I, I mean, I think what's so interesting that, that you've expressed here in your experience is that the manufacturing uh, analytics start out from this, you know, really, you know, d- d- uh, disparate, heterogeneous, uh, you know, source of di- sources, many sources of data. But then when you were able to roll this into a consistent framework and apply, you know, the um, you know some some of the experience into you know more of a more of a packaged approach or I should say sort of more of a a standardized approach you know what are some of the benefits that you see and the uh you know the you know the real advantages of of uh you know successful implementation of of you know the, your your types of solutions so you see very concrete gains sometimes shockingly fast uh there was one company uh, that that we started working with a year and a half ago, and as soon as we went live with them in their first plant, 
they, they, the data suggested that their cycle time was significantly longer than they thought for highly automated process. So anyone who knows manufacturing well, that's totally bad. Um, you think it takes three hours to make something, it makes four and a half. <laughs> it takes four and a half hours, that's terrible. And what was fascinating about this company is they, they held a hackathon. They literally got a bunch of operators and said, let's, let's ask everybody to look at the data, let's try to find out what's making the cycle time longer than we think. And in a matter of weeks, they improved their cycle time by 7%. That's an enormous leap for a highly automated company, and it, it highlights uh, another dynamic that's very challenging. And, and, you know, this has taken me some time to appreciate. You will go into plants where people have been working literally for decades to improve their process, and, and you know, it's asymptotical. They've, they've got it up to a certain level, and they just keep getting it a little bit better, a little bit better, and it feels and seems like any sort of big gain would be impossible. But they're doing this without the benefit of what their data can really tell them. And, and when you open it up this way, you can, you can support big step function leaps in improvement that nobody expects. And, and once that happens, of course, people get really excited. So we've seen, we've seen that type of thing. We've seen um, uh, very uh, complex judgments that are made by people get, get reduced to a recipe. So in a lot of the process industries, uh, for example, if you're making paper or, or uh, uh, believe it or not, milk, uh, <laughs> cheese, there's all kinds of processes out there where uh, there may literally be a thousand parameters that are influencing the decision you have to make about whether to turn something on or off or adjust it. And literally every time you run the process, you're generating data. And if you think about kind of the golden run, the perfect run for that skew under specified conditions, we know from years and years of running the plant when it worked and when it didn't and why. And if we can crunch all that data, you can now take human intuition, which is very good, and you can quantify it and put it down into a recipe. So things like that come up again and again. There's, um, I read a great study the other day that talked about people's ability to process information, and it was a study about people betting on horses and horse racing. And up to a certain number of parameters, something like 15, we get better and better if we have more information. But the human mind can't process more than 15 things at once. And if you think about a typical manufacturing process that has 40, 50, 500 parameters, there's no way we can make sense of that. But if we can let the data and the math tell us what the right recipe is or what the right things to attack are, you can drive very significant gains. The last thing I'll say about this, set is I'm giving you production percentages. What's really cool about manufacturing is it's such a fixed cost industry that every incremental unit that is produced is highly profitable because you already paid for all your machines and people to do stuff. And so if you can drive a 5 or 10% improvement in productivity, and these are the numbers that everybody's reporting. McKinsey's got some great work on this. That's what we're seeing too. That's um, significantly more impact on profitability than 5 or 10%. Sometimes it's three or four times that impact. So this is no joke if you can get it, if you can get it really uh, dialed in. Uh, you mentioned earlier that you do use uh, machine learning and some other uh, process, mm -hmm. uh, some other techniques as well to 
accelerate you know, the identification of you know, value creation. But I'd love to get your perspective on the role that uh, that AI can play, or AI and machine learning, and whether whether there are some misperceptions in the market uh, in terms of the you know the the potential outcomes or or, or power uh, that uh, we'll we'll just call it AI for now can really bring to the yes. bring to the table and and whether whether people need to be worried about losing their jobs because of this technology particularly in manufacturing so, right so great question um, AI uh, like you know I, I I was thinking when you asked me my background how many technology cycles I've personally been through and it's you know it's more than three or four now and every time something like this happens everybody kind of seizes on it and says this is the thing and it's, it's partly true and it's partly not. AI and machine learning are, are great techniques. I believe Andrew Ng, uh, I saw a presentation from him. He's a great evangelist uh, and communicator about AI. And he said, you know, AI is kind of good today for things that a human being can do in a second or less. That's about, it. That's about where it's at. And there's a huge amount of misperception that, that my, my friends and colleagues in Silicon Valley have fomented about just what AI can do uh, relative to what it actually can do. What we cannot do today and what no one should expect is just take a whole big blob of factory data and put AI on it. It doesn't work. It, it, there's no underlying structure that the AI can work on. It can't make sense of a bunch of out-of-order sensor data. But what you can do is once the data has been correctly structured, you can use a lot of these techniques, and machine learning is a really good one, to start eliciting meaningful signal from noise. And your, your question about uh, job displacement, I think, is really important. So much of what's been driving manufacturing for the last 10 or 20 years is a combination of automation and offshoring. We see a lot of plants that are short people, they don't have enough. There's something like a million to two million unfilled STEM jobs in the United States. And there is no shortage of need for people who can work with and understand information. The jobs of the future increasingly are going to involve judgment because I'll tell you, even though we give a lot of really good insight to our clients, we're not running the machines. We're a long, long way from that. And, uh, you know, Flying cars is maybe sometime in the future, but not anytime soon. And that's, that's where kind of, you know, lights out factories are too. There's still the need for people to look at the data, interpret it, and figure out what to do. So uh, there's no question that a lot of work has been automated and, and routinized, but there's a huge need for people who can work with processes and information. And companies that, that figure that out are going to have the edge. Yeah, how would you compare the state of adoption of, of you know advanced technologies such of your as yours, you know, across manufacturing? And given you, uh, I, I mean, I realize it's been been some time since you you know you were, uh, you know, you working in media and and you know, at uh, at Slashdot, but would love to get your perspective um, of you know, where where we are in the adoption cycle, uh, you know, across manufacturing. Whether there are any differences that you see uh, in terms of who were early adopters, and uh, you know, ultimately, you know how you know how you how you start to see the um, the, the next generation of manufacturing playing out. 
Absolutely. Uh, and we think about that a lot. Uh, my personal view is that it's still really early. There's been a, um, a palpable shift in the market in the last two years. Uh, most companies are spending money and trying stuff. If I had to just guess and put a rough cut on it, maybe one in 10 or one in seven and eight are really serious and experienced and thinking about scale. And scale's the big divide. Just about every large manufacturer is doing a bunch of PLCs. But the problem with PLCs is you can test the technology and it's, you know, you can test it on the bench, but that's not the same as scaling the technology. We don't get to any of the operational issues you, you mentioned a few minutes ago. We don't get to really stress testing whether technology can work at scale. We don't get any of the real benefit until we start scaling. Now, that number seems to be going up fast. And I, I read a fascinating report last week from Morgan Stanley, and they said, in their experience, when 20% of an industry gets serious, that's a tipping point. I don't think we're at 20%, but we will be in a year or two. And there's now, um, there's now fear in the market. It's really interesting. When we started out, it was all about hope. You know, there were a couple companies that thought, this is really cool. I, I want to be a good visionary, early adopter. I want to learn about this. There's now a palpable fear from companies that they're going to be left behind their competitors. And that's driving a lot of spending and, and kind of engagement. So, you know, you kind of ask for, uh, from, you know, if we compare it to Internet or open source, where are we? You know, first inning, maybe, second inning. I think we're just getting started. There are so many companies that are, that are dabbling in this, and, and uh, a meaningful but small percentage of them are, are getting serious. But that number started to grow fast. What do you see as key risks uh, going forward to you know, really realizing successful adoption of, of you know, the advanced systems, advanced analytic systems in manufacturing? And I, I guess put another, another way, you know, what, what keeps you and, and, and what keeps your, your clients up at night? So from the client point of view, um, Probably the biggest risks are organizational more than technical. I mean, if we think, if we go down the list of kind of standard things that people talk about that are really important, you know, security is very important, but the data is generally away from controls. Like, if you want to analyze data, that's very different than getting into control systems and monkeying around with how you actually run the plant. So, from a purely analytics point of view, security is very important, but it's not it's not determinative of whether or not you do this and how well you do it. The organizational issues, I think, um, are keeping up a lot of our clients they, at night. They, they know they want to do this. They know it's important. They're trying to figure out how. Speaking for ourselves, we're seeing a lot of growth. Things are starting to happen really fast for us. Uh, this may not be what you were expecting. As a company, our biggest challenge now is just ourselves. We, we're in an execution mode. And it took us five or six years to build our technology. This stuff is no joke. It took a long time. It was hard. Uh, we are now entering the realm of being a growing business and a company. And though these problems are uh, tried and true and every company has to deal with it, that's where a lot of great companies hit the wall. So we're spending a lot of time making sure that we're built out to scale and that we've got good leadership and, above all, that we get our clients' results. That's, that's the asset test. Manufacturers are skeptical. 
smart, quantitative people, and if you show them the numbers, uh, they'll, they're incredibly loyal. So it's a really interesting moment because for so long, Ed, this was evangelism, and, and now companies have proof. We have proof as a technology partner to them, and now it's all about uh, uh, partnering well and executing well. No, that's great, and and it sounds like you you guys have just made uh, you know a real significant amount of progress in the past few years to um, to really realize that vision. Um, you know, as you look forward, I mean, what uh, you know are are there some technologies or approaches that are you know that that you're particularly excited about, or you know, or or new and op- untapped opportunities that you guys are focused on. So I don't know that any of this is particularly new. It's, it's seeping into the world, but I'll tell you some of the things that my colleagues identified a year or two ago that, that are, we're really excited about. So container technology for, for cloud applications, um, being, being able to work on a variety of clouds and, and by extension on the edge is a really powerful theme in the market right now because so many great analytics companies grow up in one cloud. And, and then of course clients say, well, I'm on another cloud or I wanna be multi-cloud or I wanna be private cloud, hybrid, whatever, whatever nomenclature you wanna use. You gotta be able to apply this across a bunch of different store and compute environments. And the boundaries between edge and cloud and all that stuff is blurring. There are these great kind of technologies out there now that put huge amounts of computing power to edge. So that whole theme, and there were a lot of really cool announcements this past summer around that from the cloud companies, that whole theme is really pervasive and important. The other thing we've seen, uh, which we're really excited about, is the development of strong horizontal layers in stream processing technology. Uh, Forgive me for geeking out here. Um, If you really want to understand what's happening in a plant, it's one thing to go back and play with yesterday's data, which is what most solutions in the past have enabled us to do. But if you want to see what's happening right now and which of the five or six things that you think might be the problem or actually the problem, you need to be stream processing that data. You need to have that data flowing through a pipeline and, and kind of subject to continuous revision and analysis. There's now some really cool technologies around stream processing that are that are making that whole platform level of doing that more robust and scalable. We built a bunch of that stuff ourselves four or five years ago, and we're now relying on some great open source technologies to do that. And I, I guess the other thing I would say, which is not per se a technology answer, but is really important is, we're seeing great companies like Microsoft lean into this. Uh, there are a couple of leaders out there in the market that are really getting behind manufacturing as a vertical. and. You know, I'll just be really candid. Site Machine could have the greatest technology in the world if it goes to XYZ large enterprise manufacturer and says, hey, let's do analytics across all your plants. The God's honest truth is, it's very hard for a large enterprise manufacturer to rely on a young company, no matter how cool the technology is. But if Microsoft or Google or Amazon goes to them and says, this is on, it's happening, we're supporting it, then it's a different ballgame. And we've been really impressed with some of the leadership we're seeing out there uh, from, from the incumbent technology companies. They're taking manufacturing very seriously. Microsoft in particular is a leader in the, in the category. It's making a huge difference in the marketplace. Yeah, no, that's that's great insight because 
companies that are you know focused on ensuring that they mitigate risk for their critical systems i think you know they do look to the, they do look to the big established companies to you know to validate new ideas and i think that that it 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 ends up as you mentioned it it really becomes very helpful for the industry overall to you know to to move forward and adopt new ideas i uh, guess well, you know, oh sorry just to put a fine point on this i didn't mean to interrupt but you know, this is something I'm increasingly aware of. If you're a CIO at a large company and you're going to, or, you know, a couple levels down from the CIO, but you're going you're gonna to put your name behind an initiative and recommend that your company try something like this. Many of these companies are not the most forgiving environment. And you feel a lot better making that recommendation when somebody like Microsoft is standing next to you and letting you know they're going to make it work no matter what. So there's a uh, kind of analytical set of risks and then there's the human being risk of, am I going to put my career on the line, put my name behind this? All of that is starting to happen now. <laughs> so yeah. so uh, that, that's what's got to happen uh, for an industry to move forward. And, and I think that's why that 20% tipping point is so important, because when you see enough people around you doing it, the cost of sitting out uh, outweigh the cost of taking a risk. Right. You get uh, you get the the FOMO, the fear of missing out, kicks in as a as a, as an, a driver of urgency, which which benefits everybody who's in the industry. So, uh, yeah, it's good to hear that we're headed that way. Well, well, listen, John, this has been a it's it's been a terrific conversation. And I think we really explored a lot of great uh, great insights here. Uh, one question I always like to ask is uh, for, just for a book recommendation that you could share with with our listeners or or other resources uh, for you know for anybody. That's um, uh, kind of interested in uh, <laughs> something that you might be able to share. Sure. So uh, there are two books making the rounds in our company right now. One's called Creative Construction. It's by a Harvard Business School professor, Gary Pisano. And it's a cool book because it takes conventional wisdom and it, it turns it around a little bit. And the, the premise of the book is we all think large companies can't innovate, but maybe they can. And how can they? And another interesting book that we've been reading and talking about on, on our leadership team is called B for B. It was written 2013, I think, some time ago. And it's a really interesting book because it talks about the evolution of the software industry's business model from pure product mo model to product with a lot of services. But the next generation of, of company, that, that book argues, will be an outcome-oriented company, a company that uses a scalable product and services to deliver a specific outcome for a customer. Mm. And we find that very compelling because in manufacturing, the ROI is so concrete and so important. And if we set up the discussion from the beginning of, hey, let's lift your production two percentage points, use our product, let's come up with a program together, both companies now are committed to the outcome. It's a very different mindset than, hey, I'm going to ship you a piece of software off my dock and, and mm -hmm. good luck to you. And if you need any help, call my services arm. It's subtle, but it's important. So we like that book a lot. I'll recommend one more. You invited me to do uh, one, and I'm going to do three because I just finished a book that isn't really about work. but Oh, but no, that's great. We love it. It touches on something I've been thinking a lot uh, about lately. It's a, it's a biography of a guy named... Uh, John Boyd, um, who uh, was a really interesting theorist about um, uh, military strategy, but ultimately change in innovation. 
And in the startup community, people have been talking for years about what, what's called OODA loops. Mm-hmm. And even trying to explain it dumbs it down too much and robs the concept of what it's really all about. The story of the man and the ideas that he came up with are inextricably linked. And one of our leaders, uh, our engineering leader, John Merrill, and I were talking about OODA loops. And I thought, you know, I'm going to go figure out really how these things got, how, how, how he came up with this. It's just an intriguing book, and it was a book about a very brave soul trying to bring change to the world and what that's like. And so for any of your your uh, listeners who are trying to do that in their companies and just thinking about moving something forward in the world, I was very inspired by this guy's story. And it's a great book because, you know, he's not a perfect human being, and it tells what he went through and how he figured out a lot of cool stuff. And there is a lot of applicability from that to everything that we all do every day. His name is John John Boyd. Yep, and the, okay. the biography is called John Boyd. I believe it's by uh, Robert Corum. Okay, and that's great. I, uh, the fighter pilot who uh, who changed the art of uh, war. And yeah, the deep book. I, I was I had a long plane ride last week, and I thought, you know, I got to turn on the brain candy here and just get away from the Excel. And um, it, it was pretty cool. No, that's that's great, and that that was my understanding of it. That it, it had come from fighter pilots who need to make these decisions and these life or death decisions, and on with very limited information, and then figure out how to uh, how to navigate in in quite uncertain environments. Um, that's great, and also you know this B for B, you you kind of hit on uh, I think a really important transformation that is I, I haven't heard a lot of other people talking about it, but it, it had struck me that when software moved from on premise to as a service, you, you know you not not only does it change the you know the nature of the delivery of the technology and the architecture, but it also changes the relationship between the the client and you know the the, the vendor and. I think you hit on the the point there, which is that, you know, first of all, if you're if you're a subscription based, you have to ensure that your your clients are happy enough so that they'll keep coming back and renewing. But secondly, that you know, I, I think this goes back to a point that you made at the top of our conversation, which is that it isn't as much about the technology anymore. That's you know, that's really just a, a means to an end. But it really is more about the you know the outcomes and the and the value that you bring to your to your clients. And it's it's those are wonderful recommendations. Oh, thank you. I mean, uh, appreciate the kind words, and you know, our clients really have impressed on us that just as you said. Technology is a means to an end. Let's really focus on why we're doing this and what yeah. the benefits. Let's really focus on value. And, you know, if you line up with your customer that way and you have something cool, you'll never go wrong. <laughs> no, better words have, uh, have never been said about business. I totally agree. Well, well uh, this has been uh, a great conversation. We've been speaking with John Sobel, who is uh, CEO and uh, co-founder of Sight Machine. And again, this is Ed McGuire uh, with another episode of our Momenta podcast. And John, thank you so much for the time. Thank you, Ed. It's a pleasure. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners, and we thank you for listening to our Digital Disruptor series of interviews. For further information, please check the show notes as well as our website for more information on the innovations and innovators profiled here. And as always, we welcome your comments and suggestions. 